Hello, and welcome to a special edition of our show, Herstory. On the rocks! With Katie. And Allie. Usually we would be hanging out just the two of us with a couple of cocktails talking about famous women in history, but sometimes we like to talk to people who are writing about history. We have a very special guest here with us today, Rachel Lance. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. We're so excited. Rachel is a biomedical engineer and blast injury specialist who works as a scientific researcher on military diving projects at Duke University. She's also worked for the US Navy working to build specialized underwater equipment for use by Navy divers, SEALs, and Marine Force recon personnel. We could sit here and talk to her really about so many things, but we're here today to talk about her upcoming book, Chamber Divers, the untold story of the D-Day scientists who changed special operations forever. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, you summed it up pretty well, but basically <laughs> I'm a biomedical engineer and nobody knows what that means. Um, but basically I don't mean to brag. I hurt myself a lot. So what I've done is taken that tendency and kind of combined it with my very nerdy love of math. So now I use the principles of engineering to describe the limits at which the human body gets injured. So a lot of people in this field work, for example, on car crashes. Obviously, car crashes are a really common thing. We're always trying to come up with better ways to keep people safe during them. And so that's one really common application. Uh, I kind of went the extreme route. And so I really like blast physics. So I could probably uh, probably talk for another six hours about pipe bombs if you really wanted, but we will get to the actual topic of women in the same field because now I do that in combination with other extreme environments like underwater, on occasion, um, outer space stuff. And I do that with always the goal of trying to keep people safe. My goal is to bring people home safely, make sure that they have minimal injuries for what we can what we can engineer for. Um, as a person, I'm also a big nerd. I like 3 a.m. physics. Big fan of uh, big fan of baking and jujitsu, and um, currently rewatching all of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So I don't know what else there is to say. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, I was going to say, yeah, where were you when uh, Ted Kaczynski was running rampant? I feel like you could have been really helpful in that case <laughs> with your knowledge of pipe bombs. <laughs> Actually, one of the highlights of my career was working with the ATF and like meeting the agent who hunted down the Atlanta Olympic Park bomber. And I was sitting there and we had like a bottle of whiskey as a group thing. And I was like, no, no, yeah. it's you and me now. Tell me everything. <laughs> So, no way. <laughs> yeah, nobody else exists. <laughs> Perfect. Well, we have to get into the cocktail we made for your book. This is obviously called Chamber Divers, and it is vodka, blue curacao, orgiat syrup. You pour that over ice, you top it with Sprite, and garnish with gummy lifesavers. <laughs> so cheers. <laughs> I'm really excited about this and need to okay. make one for myself. <laughs> It's very good. Yeah. I will probably just fish out the lifesavers. So before we get started, can you set the scene for us? We're in World War II, but what is the aquatic exploration in the world like at that time? And how many women are involved in that field? Okay. So that's really key. One thing that's very important to understanding a story is that now 
in 2024, we kind of accept scuba and underwater exploration as normal. People do this every day. In World War II, this doesn't really exist yet. Jacques Cousteau is actually working on his invention of scuba in Nazi-occupied France. So he's doing this kind of in parallel with the story in Chamber Divers, but there's no way for anyone else to know about it yet because Nazis. So... In the rest of the world, the way that you need to dive if you want to go underwater is with hard hat diving. So think of Cuba Gooding Jr. in the movie Men of Honor. Um, it's really a giant contraption. You have this massive helmet. You have a support ship. It's not stealthy at all. So during World War II, of course, we have England as an island country. We have the Germans occupying France, and there's the English Channel in between them. So no matter what is going to happen, eventually, if people want to have a land war, take this fight to Hitler on the land, they need to somehow bring everyone across the water. So that's actually one of the big accomplishments of D-Day that's talked about a lot is this huge fleet of ships, these huge mulberries, which were the temporary harbors that were used. All of this culminates in D-Day, of course, but the story actually starts well before that. There were years and years of research and investment put into that entire problem. The one that I wanted to focus on for chamber divers was the one of getting people underwater before the invention of scuba in particular. and. One of the things that I was delighted to find out was that this entire expedition of science was just like rife with women. Um, this makes it a little bit better. Nobody who listens to your podcast will be surprised. But when you when you open the books about history, they never mention the women. But when you go back to like the original documents, the pictures and the reports, you're like, there are women everywhere. They were just never given credit. So that I don't have a good feeling for how many women there actually were in this field at the time because they were disjointed groups working while they were being bombed. But at least the group that I focused on in London was about half women, and they were all doing these experiments on themselves. So we have this not only amazing group of scientists, but this amazing like group of self-sacrificing scientists and um, half of them being women as well. So mm -hmm. it's pretty cool. And I would love to talk about this group. It's a research team led by JBS Haldane and Dr. Helen Spurway. Can you tell us a little bit about them, their team, um, and just what they were up to? <laughs> they are some of my favorite characters in history because they are such quirky personalities. And you can see kind of why they got together. Eventually, they end up getting married. They're co-leading the lab during the war. After the war, they get married. But it's very pragmatic. It was because they wanted to go on like a scientific lecture tour and they wouldn't let them travel together <laughs> unless they were married. And they're like, fine, that's, we'll just sign this paperwork. It means nothing else to yes. us. <laughs> but um, they were both geneticists by training. And so uh, this was, of course, again, before the discovery of the the structure that we now know as DNA, which fits in perfectly because Rosalind Franklin had a lot of her work still from her in that. But at that time, a lot of what they were doing with genetics was by looking at math. So these people were extraordinary mathematicians and in a way that I found personally really charming. So like GBS Haldane 
had constant diaries that he kept of like the cats that he would see, like stray cats in London. And when he was in Italy, he had like a whole diary of the fur patterns of stray cats. And then Helen Sperwey would do this same thing with salamanders and newts. She was obsessed with salamanders and newts. And she would just like go to people's houses and knock on their door and ask if she could like muck about in the pond in their backyard and look for salamanders <laughs> so she could like describe the color patterns of them and they also had way more controlled laboratory experiments with flies and and things like that but that was how they were exploring these early days of genetics and so when the world war broke out obviously the math of how genes propagate is not like an urgent national concern so they're immediately all being bombed they're being bombed in their laboratory which they are actually sneaking into at night to like keep doing science because they just love science so much and then they realize like hey we actually have the skills to help so that's what ended up happening is these people who are mathematicians, they do a lot of statistics, they work with flies, they hunt down salamanders, and they realize like they actually have the math skills to figure out some of these questions facing the allies. Mm. So they're doing research and you say they're testing kind of on themselves. How dangerous were these things they were testing? They're extremely dangerous. There is, I mean, I was sitting there reading some of these reports with my jaw on the floor and I had to like call people just to be like, I know you're not going to just, you know, just shut up and listen to me. <laughs> I need to tell you about this. But what they were doing then would never be allowed today. Um, it would be shut down immediately. So just as one example, one of the women who's really key in this story is a woman named Elizabeth German. And she had a degree in science and she spoke scientific German and she was just like general badass. So of course they made her the group secretary, <laughs> and, um, but she was still like an active participant in and leading these experiments. And so during one particular one, she was looking at the effects of oxygen under pressure. So something that is not really commonly known is that, um, Obviously, too little oxygen is bad for you, but too much oxygen is just as bad for you. Um, so oxygen can become really toxic if you have too much of it. When you're on 100% oxygen on the air, like in the hospital, you can really only be on it for about three days before you start to have serious lung issues that will eventually become fatal if you, they don't take you off. And when you're under pressure, that event effect gets even more amplified. And so Elizabeth German was one of the people who was using her own body to test what happens with this oxygen under pressure in the water, because of course, the best time for everyone to discover that this was a problem was while Hitler was bombing everyone. So that's, that's exactly what happened. They didn't know how big this issue was before that. Hitler starts bombing everyone. And all of a sudden, these tests are an emergency, and they're being bombed while they're doing it. So Elizabeth German is subject to this bombing outside the lab. She puts these oxygen breathing apparatuses on. She gets in the hyperbaric chamber to artificially create the pressure. And she's the first person to ever discover through having a seizure herself that oxygen in water is even more dangerous than in the air. Mm. So that's like the thing about the danger is like, she was not only having a seizure, she was having a seizure underwater and the power of it was so strong that it broke her spine. So she literally cracked her neck during this test in water inside a closed metal tube where they could not pull her out right away. And 
Not only that, but they kept testing. That was not their last test. This was just like one of several that had these incidents. Yeah. Like Dr. Helen Spurway, when she was doing it in one test, so not even just all the tests, one test, she's in the chamber. Again, you can't get out. No one else can get in. It's thick metal. They can't even really hear you well. She had so many seizures that she kept dislocating her jaw. She dislocated her jaw five times. And the person who's in there with her has to reset it himself. And then she would just seize again and her jaw would dislocate again. And again, this was not her last test. They like took a week off and then went back for more. Uh, how, how I know, right? I'm like so shocked by this. Yeah. How are they? So hyperbaric chambers can vary in size. The smallest one, and I, I do work in them a lot at Duke. Yeah. Um, the smallest ones are what we call coffin chambers. And that's a visual, not necessarily a danger commentary. They're about that size. So it's the smallest volume that you can fit a person into. Some of the largest chambers in the world are probably like 20 or 30 feet in diameter. And they're always um, like either spheres or cylinders to hold the pressure. Mm. So the chambers that this particular group was working in were about five or six feet in diameter cylinders. Um, And so they were pretty small. It's a small area because you need it to hold that pressure in. So the bigger you make it, the bigger the force is on the walls. Mm. So I know, right? <laughs> and and a lot of times there's no light. Like, I was gonna say, isn't it? Yeah, I, mean, I don't just in case you need like windows. <laughs> yeah, there's there's usually like a window or two, but a lot of times there's like no light in there because lights will blow the whole thing, like the whole thing will catch on fire. Hmm. So just in case you needed it to be creepier. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> perfect. A daydream. Yeah. Rock and fratty night. Yeah. <laughs> So let's connect this to D-Day. How is this research impacting, you know, Normandy? So one of the lesser known aspects of D-Day that I think is really fascinating is there was extensive scouting of the beaches beforehand. Mm -hmm. This group and what they figured out about breathing up underwater was directly used for the Admiralty, the British Admiralty, to build these tiny, tiny mini subs. And so these only had like three to five people in them. They were 40 feet long, but that includes like all of the submarine bits, right? (laughs) So the living space is really compressed. In a really small environment, your need to understand the breathing physiology gets a lot more serious um, because you don't have that like reserve. So this research was directly used to build those mini subs and send them over to Normandy, not only um, just before D-Day, but even in the months before. So these personnel would go over, be in these mini subs, hang out on the bottom of the ocean for 18 hours a day, and then like when the Germans were asleep, would come to the surface, get out of the sub and swim out onto shore. So that is the direct application of the research to being able to have these mini subs on the bottom, keep the people alive inside. And they were taking sand samples. They had like a bandolier of test tubes and they would like take samples of the sand and bring it back to England and like soil experts would study it. And they were like making detailed maps of where the guns were and where people walked. And if there were footprints, they would be like, there's probably no mines here. So these people were incredibly clever. They were walking, swimming through this freezing cold water, getting back in these mini subs, and then heading back to England. And before D-Day, a couple of days before D-Day, the British sent over these exact same mini subs to mark the beaches. Mm-hmm. 
So that's part of their navigational plan. These guys were just like chilling there for a couple of days before. And then they came to the surface. And I, I remember one amazing account of like a guy who landed at D-Day. And he said that he couldn't see the sub. He could only see the person standing on top. And so he thought this guy was just like somehow walking on the water. And he was like, what is happening? What is going on right now? So... <laughs> That was a big part of it. And then on top of that too, those waters and those, those harbors were full of obstacles. We've all seen, hopefully like Saving Private Ryan, you have the obstacles. Those are completely loaded with explosives. So this group made it possible for people to take the early prototypes of underwater breathing systems and use them in those environments safely. So a lot of people got killed on D-Day, but there were zero accidents from diving. Wow. And were they working on like individual suits at this time or mainly just the mini subs? They did both. So they had the mini subs and then they transitioned to individual breathing apparatuses as D-Day became like clearly necessary. So that, that they had this kind of focus shift, but they'd already established themselves as like the go-to experts. So obviously we have like very overt sexism in scientific research now and then, but yeah. were there Great. Any, Great. how were these women being treated as a part of this research team? Were they seen as equals or were they like not so much? Within the team, they were seen as equals. So that's part of the reason that I think this team is so special is because there were three main women, uh, Elizabeth German, Helen Sperway, and then a third named Ursula Philip who is actually a German Jewish refugee. She had fled just in advance of Hitler to come over to England. And within the context of the team, these experiments, they're very much treated equally. Like Ursula Philip and one of the other men on the team were paid the same salary. So you you really don't see salary equity very often, Mm -hmm. Um, but we saw it within this group. So these women were not only allowed to lead projects and were given autonomy to run experiments on their own and draw conclusions on their own, but they were actually paid the same, uh, which you don't see very often in that time period at all. And I mean, still obviously occurs today. I know I've been subjected to this pay gap. Um, So the fact that GBS Haldane as the lab lead actually was willing to advocate, he didn't phrase it as equal pay, but they were getting equal pay. Mm-hmm. So he was this very practical person um, who didn't think gender mattered. Wow. That's so rare when we. <laughs> kind of yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, now of course the world outside the lab did have greater disparities and Some of this work is not known because the accomplishments of these women were stolen from them. They were plagiarized and there was another male researcher who published them under his own name. Mm -hmm. So that very directly happened. He took their work verbatim. Mm -hmm. Um, So obviously the world outside the lab is different, but within the lab, they seem to have been treated as equals. Yeah. Now I would love to get into the research for this because I think these documents were classified, correct? So That's correct. How did you get access to them? Were they just generally declassified or did you have to ask for them? Um, how was that process? A little bit of both. <laughs> so <laughs> things that are 80 years old are not considered as sensitive anymore. Okay. So you, yeah. 
So a lot of these, some of these have been automatically declassified on their own. They just never been used. Mm -hmm. So anytime between the 1970s and 2001, when there had been a declassification process, people had said, okay, this doesn't affect anything. It's D-Day. It doesn't affect anything modern. And so there had been some declassification. Others had not yet been subjected to that. And so I did have to file Freedom of Information Act requests for them. Um, thankfully, there was not a lot of pushback. Like people generally agreed that we know about D-Day now. We know <laughs> we know that it happened. So it's okay to talk about the planning. Yeah. <laughs> So what are some of the documents that, that were sealed? And like, was there a lot of paperwork? Like how much paperwork do you have to file for that? It's surprisingly little. So the government, especially the American government and the British government both have freedom of information laws. Mm -hmm. And so there are clear pathways in order to get that information. And there's an like an application and submission process that they've set up for you because this is so baked into our law. Mm -hmm. And the people who are doing it are generally really friendly unless you're doing something very strange. <laughs> but yeah, in my experience, like World War II researcher, I've met with mostly friendly people who are willing to help and who are willing to make suggestions. Mm -hmm. um, like, for example, just before this call, I was just filing more Freedom of Information Act requests with the FBI. Huh. The FBI is great. Yeah. As long as you're not trying to like set free criminals, they're right. like, oh, you want to research this person in 19, 1916? Great. Here, have all, have fun. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, that's good to know. We do research every week and I've never had to file one of those papers. No. So I'm pretty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> While you were writing the book and you're going through all of these very like complex scientific things, did you have to kind of really think about how you presented it for people who don't work in the field? Us like us? Or, uh, <laughs> the idiots? Oh my God. Okay, first of all, not the idiots. <laughs> you. Don't like that nonsense. <laughs> Shut it down real fast. It's it's not okay. What I realized over the course of writing, because this is my second book. So what I've realized over the course of writing these books is that every field in the world has terminology. Mm -hmm. Like even podcasting. Yeah. Like I guarantee you have words that are not used outside of your field. And you know what those mean. I probably don't know what those mean. So the trick is just breaking down that language in a way that uses only mainstream English. Mm -hmm. So everyone has the capacity to understand. It's just about abandoning the terminology. Mm -hmm. So that that's something that I was really afraid of, was really terrified of, but now love. And my, I'll, I'll tell you my secret. Um, my secret is actually my mom. So <laughs> my mom is my perfect target audience because she's incredibly smart and she has zero science background. So every time I write like a science passage, I send it to my mom and I'm just like, explain this back to me when you're done. Yeah. And so she'll be really honest. She'll be like, you lost me here. That part's boring. Don't care about this. Like, this <laughs> is awesome. Tell me more. And I'm like, okay. And so if she can explain it back to me, then I know that I've done my job. That's nice. I, like I love that. that. <laughs> yeah. It's a really great, it's a really great system. It's working out well. So I'm here for moms. I yes. really like moms. <laughs> yeah. So when people buy this book and sit down to read it, what do you want them to take away with them? What are, what do you want them to get from it? 
I want them to take away that there, there are beautiful stories where, um, there are beautiful stories of work and self-sacrifice that are not the obvious ones. Um, there are these people and this group is far from alone. Like there were so many side stories that I ran into that I just would have wished I could have spent entire chapters on, but they were too off topic and the book would have been 4,000 pages. So there, there are so many stories of kindness and bravery and contribution. Um, and we focus on the people who ran on the beaches and they absolutely deserve memory and they absolutely deserve honor. There are also other people who helped with that victory that deserve some degree of the same. So I really want them to leave like feeling this more relatable human story of everyday scientists who just worked with fruit flies and really like statistics and then found their way to contribute. And is there a woman who you have found maybe in this research or the research for your first book or just any other thing that you're kind of looking at that you would recommend that we cover on our podcast who you'd think is just totally unsung? Oh my gosh. Have you talked about Stephanie Kolak? No. <laughs> she is the woman who invented Kevlar. <laughs> yeah. Little no, I, I am a blast and ballistic specialist and I did not know that Kevlar was invented by a woman until someone was like, what's the first name of this scientist? I was like, great question. <laughs> Stephanie. <laughs> Turns out it's Stephanie. <laughs> She's awesome. So she worked for DuPont. She was a chemical engineer and she figured out the way to like chain these fibers together in order to make bulletproof vests. And so she, yeah, I just think that it's an, it's a really cool story. That's awesome. That's awesome. I can't yeah. 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 Well, we're so happy you came here to talk with us today. Can you tell everybody who's listening, this book comes out April 16th. Can you tell people where they can find it, where they can find you and they can find your former book and all your socials and things of that nature? Oh my gosh. Um, the self plug that I'm so awkward about. Yes. Okay. <laughs> So this one comes out April 16th. I'm really excited about it. I plan to talk about Elizabeth German as loudly as possible for the rest of my life. Um, on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Underwater Lance. And then I also have Facebook at Rachel Lance Writes. But I'm, I'll be honest, I'm lazy about the Facebook page. But um, if you read the books and you have questions, um, I do try really hard to answer on my own emails. So I, there's a contact form on my website, which is rachellancewrites.com. And the first book, which is called In the Waves, um, is they're both available pretty much everywhere. So that's really good. Like, yeah, they're they're pretty easy to find. Um, I do really request that people try and support their local bookstores. We all need places we can go and keep smelling the books. So um, yeah, try and support those. Yeah, totally agree. And because it comes out in April, there's plenty of time to pre-order the book, mm-hmm. you know, request it at your local library. You know, there are so many avenues that people should uh, find to support this book. So <laughs> thanks. Yeah. Oh, and that's actually a really great point. Um, libraries still support authors. So like, <laughs> please never download anything for free. We don't, we get, we can get really hurt by that. But like the library system is already established. You get it for free and it still supports the author's career. So like, yeah. oh, well, it was so great to meet you. This has been such a blast. Yeah, likewise. I had a lot of fun.
Good. So, <laughs> if you ever want to do that six hour documentary about pipe bombs, you yeah. <laughs> I'm open to it. I'm open. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.